A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and our continuing series on maritime China. Today we're exploring a fascinating intersection of Chinese and British culture in a story that not only takes us into themes of imperialism and international sea power, but also to the development of submarines. I think you must instinctively know if you have what's required to be a submariner and I can confidently celebrate the fact that I have none of it enclosed spaces, cramped conditions, invisible enemies. Well, that's no good to me. In particular, I have the utmost admiration for those who became submariners before the real science and practice of being a submariner was properly understood. Which brings us to HMS Poseidon. Now, Poseidon sank off the Chinese coast during normal exercises in 1931, having struck a freighter. She had 56 crew. 30 made it out of the hatches as she sank. 26 remained trapped. Eight of those attempted to surface using an early form of diving equipment specifically designed for submarine escapes. Five survived and they became heroes. But that is only part of this story because at some point, in complete secrecy, the Chinese raised the wreck. This remarkable story has recently been investigated by the historian and diver Stephen Schwankert, and it has been published in his excellent book, Poseidon, China's Secret Salvage of Britain's Lost Submarine. Stephen Schwankert is an editor and award-winning reporter with 17 years of experience in Greater China. He is the Asia Chapter Chair of the Explorers Club, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and founder of Sino Scuba, Beijing's first professional scuba diving operator. He was also the historian involved in the remarkable film The Six, which we have covered in a previous podcast in our Maritime China series, cataloguing the six Chinese passengers who survived the Titanic disaster. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the man who not only leaves no stone unturned in his quest for the truth, but no leaf, no boulder. He would even turn over raindrops if he could. Here is the fabulous Stephen. Stephen, it's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's an honour. Um, 
it's not often that I don't know how to start interrogating someone to start asking questions. This is such an amazing story. And um, I've come to know uh, a colleague of yours, Arthur Jones, who's made a film about this. Um, I've just watched the film, which is absolutely extraordinary. Um, I suppose it's complicated because it's a story both about Poseidon, but it's also a story about you discovering the story of Poseidon. There are two aspects of it, aren't there? Um, why don't we start? I'll tell you what. How did you first come across the story? So I was, uh, I opened my own dive operation in China, in Beijing in, in 2003, Sino Scuba. And really it was just, you know, we were really challenged for places to dive. Um, there, you know, diving was not well developed at that point. Um, you know, there were a number of foreigners who were living in Beijing or Shanghai and they, they had an interest in it um, or they brought that interest with them. Chinese people were just getting to a point where they were traveling and learning to dive and discovering the oceans and realizing that they they could do dis, you know just some discovering of their own, but there were not there were not a lot of dive sites. You could go down to Hainan Island and maybe get a little, little tropical diving, but especially at that time, you know, it just travel to even Southeast Asia was somewhat difficult. It was somewhat expensive. It wasn't really well developed. So. I was just interested in diving near Beijing. Where could we go? Were there quarries? Were there just training areas that we could use, yeah. you know, lakes that we could access? And so I, I just spent a lot of time looking at maps, Googling, um, you know, using the, the magic uh, explore shipwreck terms, you know, on Google, shipwreck in China, shipwreck in some other place name, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, you know, uh, I, I like to say that I, I discovered a shipwreck using Google. I mean, I, I, I typed in, I think it was Weihai, you know, the, the, the place in, in Shandong province, Weihai and yeah. shipwreck. And probably result number eight on that list was something about a British submarine that I had never heard of sunk somewhere near there uh, in 1931. And I thought, what, what is this? What is this about? Yeah. And so, you know, straight down the rabbit hole I went and, at you know, by the time I finally pushed myself away from the computer that night, I thought, I've, I've got to go dive this. Who, who is diving this? How do we get there? And then, you know, let's go. How do we do this? So that's let's really help our listeners out and um, explain why the British were at Weihai. So um, there was a colony called Weihai Wei, probably one of the least known colonies in, in British Empire history. Um, and it really, it was just, you know, the, a lot of different powers were trying to get their piece of northern China. The, the Russians had an, uh, an area up near Dalian. Um, the Japanese took a bit. Um, if you've heard of, of, of Qingdao beer or Tsingtao beer, you know, that was the German bit of, of China, not, not so far from where Wei Highway was. And the British, of course, said, well, we got to get our piece, too. And so they took this little piece on, on the northeast tip of Shandong province, which is, if you look at a map of China, it sort of sticks out from, you know, an area south of, uh, south of Beijing. Um, it's, you know, as an American, I think of it as the Cape Cod of China. It's sort of same geographical area and looks similar. So yeah. they, they held on to that, that area for about, I don't know, 40 years. They never did much with it. Um, and then finally, at the end of it, they, they decided, 
well, we're not really doing anything with this and uh, we'd like to have better relations with China, so let's give it back. But we're going to keep this one area in the harbor. We're going to keep this one island in the harbor for a naval, a naval base for the next 10 years. And that's where our uh, beloved HMS Poseidon comes into play. When I first heard about the story, the thing that really struck me was that there was a submarine there in the 1930s. And um, in terms of submarine capability, it's quite impressive getting a British submarine to, to somewhere near Beijing in the 30s, isn't it? So it was, you know, they were, these submarines were pretty advanced for the day. I wouldn't say they were the, the super carriers of their day, but but they were quite powerful, quite Quite more so in terms of projecting force than than um, a non-nuclear submarine would be today, and also because of the Washington Naval Treaty, which which restricted the the construction of larger surface ships. You know, the British Navy just couldn't really spare good surface ships for what was essentially patrol duty. So they had, you know, submarines were cheaper. They had a, 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 an excess of them, and so they deployed a number of them there to really just to kind of keep an eye on everybody, keep an eye on Japan, keep an eye on the Russians, just make sure things didn't get out of hand in northern China. How big were they? How many crew, uh, torpedoes? What are we talking about in terms of this sub? So um, I think it was about 16 torpedoes, um, crew of about 70, including officers, um, you know, 90 meters, maybe, you know, 200 and not quite 300 feet long. So, you know, sub- substantial craft, but, you know, certainly not a battleship. Yeah. And, um, well, let's start with what happened. <laughs> so uh, it, it was a day just like any other day, June 9th, 1931. Um, HMS Poseidon goes out for just a, just a training exercise. They're going to, they're going to fire some torpedoes, um, some dummy torpedoes at a, uh, at a target ship. So you know, a few surface ships join them out there, and uh, Commander Galpin is uh, Commander uh, Bernard W. Galpin, Lieutenant Commander Bernard W. Galpin, I should say, is uh, at the helm, and he is teaching his uh, lieutenant how to perform a submarine attack on the surface. So they're not using the gun; it's a torpedo attack, but you know something standard you would do at night or. You know, but they're going to practice in the day. They're at a dead stop. Um, and coming into the target area is the SS Utah. In, in Chinese, it's Yutai, but, but it's, it's spelled Y-U-T-A and pronounced like the, the American state. So Utah is just a coastal steamer. Um, it's a, it's a, a cargo ship. It's carrying a load of cement from one place on the China coast to another. And it's just on a steady course. And it's just happening to, to come into the target area. Galpin decides that he should teach his junior officer that to get into position, sometimes the easiest way is not to make the shortest turn. So what he wants Poseidon to do is to come, come around, basically make a 270-degree turn to get into a proper firing uh, position against HMS Marazine, which is the target ship. He probably noticed Utah coming through. He probably thought that they would just avoid each other. And therein lies his big mistake. So he starts to, to the, the turn start. He starts engines, starts to make his turn. 
He's still coming through his turn. Utah has not changed, uh, has not changed course. The turn keeps coming, the turn keeps coming, and then all of a sudden they realize, uh-oh, we're, we're on a collision course, okay? Both, both vessels turn in the direction they shouldn't have turned. So, so Utah turns to starboard, Poseidon turns to port, and then now they're really on a, on a, a collision course, and Galpin hopes that Poseidon is going, is going to come out of its turn quickly enough that they end up parallel. It's not, the turning radius just isn't, isn't that tight. And uh, Utah hits uh, Poseidon almost right in front of the conning tower mm-hmm. and um, immediately starts to take on water. Um, Galpin commands abandoned ship. Um, a, a number of men are, uh, most of the, the, the officers and the crew come out through the conning tower, um, but about... 24, 25 crewmen go down with Poseidon to the bottom. So in, in many cases, that would be the end of the story. However, what makes Poseidon special is that in the forward torpedo room, you had a number of men. You had, you had um, five men, five Navy men, and two Chinese boys, what they referred to as boys. They were, in this case, they were you know, younger men, but, but boy was a term that just sort of referred to a, a mate, you know, a, a helper. So they're in danger of getting flooded, aren't they? So there's a, there's, the first thing they need to do is to make sure that they're sealed. Right. So, so, uh, chief petty officer, Patrick Willis, no relation to you, I don't think. Well, um, I need to find this out. Yeah. I've got, there are a lot of Willises <laughs> in the Navy, I tell you. My, my <laughs> grandfather, his father, there are two of them. And yeah. so, um, yeah. And one of them was at way high as well in 1926, so it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Indeed. So, so um, Chief Petty Officer um, Patrick Willis sort of takes, takes command of the situation and says, looks around, says, okay, we're not going to make it if we stay here. We need mm. to flood up. And we need to try to make an escape. So really, you know, quick thinking on his part. And so, so they seal themselves into the into the kind of the chamber at the front. Right. They the seal bounce. themselves in, but they decide, all right, so they're now on the bottom at 40 meters, 130 feet. So if you've done your patty open water course, you know that they're right at the sort of edge of what we consider recreational diving today. So, um, you know, they have, they're, they're breathing the air in the chamber um, and... What they have working for them is they have on board sets of the Davis uh, Davis submerged escape apparatus. Sorry, the, okay. the, the DSEA, <laughs> S- the Davis submerged escape apparatus. So this is sort of a proto scuba device. Basically, it's a it's a life preserver with an air source. Think of it that hmm. way. It, it's, Let's just say that scuba has not been invented yet. Anyway. Scuba that not, doesn't exist. Right. No. Scuba doesn't exist. The, the gas canister in this is pure oxygen. It's not air, it's not compressed air. Um, so that presents its own problems. But they decide, okay, we're gonna use the Davis gear, we're gonna flood up, and then we're gonna squeeze through the torpedo hatch. Now, this is not the torpedo tube where the, where the torpedo is fired. This is a loading hatch on the top of the submarine from, from which they would load torpedoes down into the forward torpedo room. So uh, Willis kind of, computes all this in his head, says, okay, fine, we're going to flood up. So they start to flood the chamber. They use a couple of, you know, valves. They open up a couple of valves, and it takes about two and a half hours for them to get to the point where they think... Two, 
That's extraordinary. Right. And so, um, what time of year is this? So this is this... June. This is June. Right. Okay. But they're you Still know pretty cold. They're at the bottom of of the Bohai Sea, which is not known for being particularly you know warm and, and cozy. It's it's not the Caribbean Sea for sure. Um, so uh, they flood up, and then in the meantime, there there are a few things going on. So one of the one of the um, uh, submariners starts to panic. He feels like he's not getting enough air. He starts to breathe off of his Davis set. And, you know, that's, that's not going to go well. Um, and as uh, Willis said in one of his later accounts, he said he, he, he drifted away. And, and he was, you know, sort of never seen again. So um, we know he didn't make it out of the forward torpedo room. They so you just explain the problem there. You can't breathe this right. pure oxygen. So, so even if he, so first of all, breathing pure oxygen, even at the surface, is is problematic. I mean, we do it for athletes, we do it for uh, people who are injured, but but breathing pure oxygen is is not great for for uh, human physiology. It's not great for the lungs, um, and then especially to be breathing it at pressure. So. Uh, 40 meters would be five atmospheres. So it's almost like breathing 500% oxygen. So the physiological effects are just, you know, very, the, the, the smarter submariners among them just breathe the air. Even as it was getting fouled by their own carbon dioxide, it was still probably better to breathe. Plus it also meant that if you breathe your oxygen before you start to make your escape, you have no gas uh, to yeah. breathe on the way up. So, but but it's, it's it's okay to use it once you've left the submarine and worked your way up. Absolutely, yeah, because a, because, the, because of the pressure difference. Right, it's not great, but you know, for they're not going that far. It's not going to take them that long. So, Fine. so we, we're losing one submariner. He's drifted right. off. So one one submariner's kind of drifted off. Then they realized they didn't have enough uh, Davis sets for everyone in the room. That one of the Chinese boys wasn't going to get one. Um, so ultimately, they made a decision excuse me, that one of the boys who also started to panic, they said, well, okay, well, when we make our, our escape, we're going to knock him out and then bring him with us unconscious. You know, if you've seen the cave, you know, it's almost, almost that principle that it's easier to, to manipulate somebody when they're unconscious. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so one of them is panicking. They decide to knock him out and take him with them, and the other one right. the other one gets a set. too far gone. Yeah. The, the other one gets a set. The other one known as, as Ahai or Ahoy, he yeah. is, um, he's given a set. He's shown how to use it. So finally, after about two and a half hours, they say, okay, let's try, to, let's try to pop the hatch, okay? So they try to do it, can't do it, the pressure's too great, all right? So they wait about 15 more minutes, they try it again. And I mean, just imagine, you know, 130 feet, you know, 40 meters worth of water trying to push back on you as you're pushing a heavy hatch. I mean, it just, how they even did it is, is, is amazing. Plus they have to go up and out at an angle because again, this is an angle of hatch um, through which they're, they're loading torpedoes. So uh, in the end, I think five, uh, one, two, three, four, five of, six of them went out the hatch. The unconscious Chinese boy was lost on the way up. Um, one of the men died at the sort of during the ascent and then, so you, in the end, you have, you have four submariners, including Willis and Ahoy, the Chinese boy. They all make it. Okay? Mm. They all make it to the surface, and they all survive. And in terms of successful submarine escapes using escape equipment, you know, this, this is a pretty significant moment in history, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, for, again, for anybody who's taken any kind of a scuba course, uh, when we talk about decompression sickness... A lot of what we know about decompression sickness actually came from this incident. Um, it's in medical liter- literature. There was an article in The Lancet about it at the time. I mean, it's really, you know, this is really a seminal moment in sort of, uh, you know, barometric or hyperbaric medicine, I should say. Um, so, you know, in the end, they, they make it. Um, I heard a description from Willis saying when he went up, he, he just before he passed out, he felt like he was being torn apart. Yeah. Which um, just just a poor, incredible pain. He was yeah. In. I mean, it, so so, you know, being being at the bottom for three hours in a in a chamber like that, basically, they were just loading up their bodies were just loading up on nitrogen. And so, you know, when we talk about the bends, when we talk about decompression sickness, essentially they were bent. They were bent quite quite badly, you know. The again to to use a recreational diving example, I think the bottom time now for forty meters, the safe bottom time is about nine minutes, and these guys yeah. did about three hours. So that you know, with no decompression, it, it's amazing that any of them survived really. Um, and so, but I mean, the after effects were significant. Willis was debilitated later in life. Um, one of the other uh, men, there's footage of him at his daughter's wedding, and he's using crutches, you know, to walk his daughter down the aisle. I mean, just really, really, um, you know, terrible stuff. And and then later on, there was a, there was further research, re, further research done later on that proved that that this single exposure to decompression sickness um, was enough to call what uh, was enough to cause you know, bone, bone degradation later in life. It, it had been previously thought that you needed multiple exposures and, and, and this incident proved you only needed one. But so they, they emerged as heroes. Um, they were the only men that made it out from Poseidon, you know, to the surface. Uh, the other 18 men um, that weren't in the forward torpedo room, they, they're, they're still on eternal patrol. And, um, 
you know, Will, Willis got the uh, the Albert Medal. Yep. Yeah. 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 He got. And this is all front page news. I mean, it's pro- pro- properly famous. So, so I think listeners of the podcast will probably be familiar with the sinking of of the Kursk, the Russian submarine, the Kursk. Yep. And it was the same kind of thing. You know, it was front page coverage, and there was a feature film made about it later in 1931 um, uh, called Men Like These. Um, you know, which really focuses on 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 Willis's heroism and and the story of the men in the forward torpedo room. Um, yeah, it was it was you know, but it's it, it was sort of forgotten because you know when World War II comes around, of course, there's so many other tales of heroism that something interwar is just not really going to you know stand up in the same way. People aren't going to remember it in the same way. So. Um, so, you know, so when I learned all of this, I thought, you know, where is this submarine and how are we going to get out there? And, and you know, and here is the kink in the story, Stephen, which is uh, which is what makes this truly fantastic. So off you went. I'll go and find the submarine. Have a look. And um, something got in the way. <laughs> yeah, something got in the way. So, you know, at the risk of uh, ruining the documentary and, and my fine book on the subject um, for your listeners. Um, so. You know, so much of this took place either on Google or in a library um, that I didn't even manage to get wet. Uh, my my research was a bit too good. Um, so, yeah, in in the course of the research, so I read I read Chinese not particularly well, but I I read it enough to be somewhat functional. And in the course of my research, I found a reference to something about this submarine being lifted off the bottom, and I thought. What does that mean? So I took that particular passage to a Chinese friend and I said, I said, what, what does this phrase that I don't understand mean? And she said, lift, raise. And I said, does that mean that they lifted the submarine off the bottom? And she said, yes. So in 1972... Um, they at, being the Chinese. They, they being <laughs> the, the Chinese Navy, um, they raised the submarine um, as part of the development of their nuclear submarine fleet. Um, you, one, one of the things that you want to do when you develop a n- nuclear submarine fleet is know that you can get them back. And so here was a ready-made target. Here was a ready-made you know, way for them to practice. And um, apparently it was also hooking fishing nets. And it was you know, just kind of – it wasn't a hazard to navigation. But, and so finally they decided, okay, let's, let's bring this up. Yeah. And so, I think we should we should leave this part of the story there for those who should read the book. I have to say it's one of the best books on naval history I've ever read, <laughs> and the film is itself oh, absolutely you. fantastic. No, it's um, it's wow. brilliant. It's um, the uh, the 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 um, detective work that you had to do to co- try and kind of unpick it all. That's what I thought was really impressive, um, because I've done a lot of work in China, and uh, there's a wonderful bit in the in the in the film where you talk about the man, the Chinese man with the keys. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about that and how how you how you um you get things done. I mean the the, the you know the way that responsibility is uh, divided up in China. You certainly at that time, you know, certainly in the in the early part of uh, you know twenty years ago when when we started working on this, um, you know, if you needed access to a building or to something, you would go find the man with the key because there would be one key and one person would have it. And the problem was if that person was sick and didn't come to work that day or, you know, went off to have lunch or fell asleep or didn't want to help you, then you couldn't open the door. Um, so a lot of it is just about finding the right people. And, and you know, I mean, ultimately our motives were, 
you know, were pure. We were we were interested in trying to find this thing and finding out the full story. We weren't there to, to accuse anyone. And, um, you know, we just really wanted to know the full history from both sides. You know, what was the, the history of the salvage? What was the history of, um, you know, the... You know the full history of the families and and their service on board and those who lost uh, relatives on board and um, you know it, it was it, now that people have spent two or three years in lockdown um, and I, which I'm sure everyone remembers fondly anybody who did a a you know a, a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle um, you know our our puzzle was just not dumped on the you know kitchen table our 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 uh, puzzle was was all over the world. Part of it was in Hong Kong, and part of it was in Shandong, and part of it was in the UK. And you know, we just had to go and pick up the pieces and try to put them together and, and look at the whole picture. Yeah, um, and the 70s in China was a, that was a pretty tough time for the Chinese as well. And it's a, a lot of them would find that a difficult time to remember, let alone a difficult time to remember if someone's pointing a camera at them. Well, sure, def- definitely a tough time. Um, you know, not a, a, a time when resources were definitely lacking, um, you know, and, and, you know, let's be honest, both then and now the Bohai Sea is essentially a large Chinese pond. You know, there was, there was no, there was nobody that was going to discover them, uh, you know, doing some kind of salvage activity in, in, in the middle of the Bohai Sea back then. Nobody would have paid attention to it. I mean, I think there might have been a little bit of embarrassment on the Admiralty side because, um, you know, the article that I discovered that, 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 that described the salvage was something that they could have walked out of the British embassy and gone down to the newsstand and purchased for about, a, you know, $1.30. But, you know, I, I realize that not everybody's open source intelligence gathering operations extend to hobbyist magazines on naval history and Chinese. So um, <laughs> but, it went under the radar. Um, and what about um, finding uh, living relatives of the people who, who lived, um, the few who lived and, and the majority who died on Poseidon? Did you enjoy that part of it, the research? Well, it, it's to me, that's really the part that drives you forward. I mean, if you're if you're writing about a shipwreck, you know, you can do a she made this many revolutions and she was this long and, and the beam was this and so forth. And that's great, but it doesn't really connect with a larger audience. It doesn't really um, draw in someone who, who doesn't know or care much about naval history. Ultimately, people connect with people. People connect with people's stories. And, you know, for probably the first third of my work, the, the story of Poseidon was really just a, a story about a lost piece of metal. And then I was contacted via um, via the Royal Navy Submarine Museum and the, and the archivist there, uh, George Malcolmson, um, a woman in Canada who had her father's diary. Uh, it was his unpublished diary of his time on board Poseidon and, and the rest of his time in the Navy. But and I mean, it was like the Rosetta Stone. I mean, just absolutely brought the whole thing to life. She, he described uh, so. So Walter Jeffries had been a, ra- a signalman. And um, he uh, was on Poseidon basically from, you know, almost the moment she got her name um, and described the captain, described Willis the hero, described just, you know, everything uh, about life on board, the ports that they went to and what they were like. And, you know, I mean, it just sounded like a very, a very happy vessel and uh, that, that met yeah. a very sad end. 
Um, I was listening to the speech that the captain made when he gets back to the UK. He gets the survivors together and he says, look, guys, you're here for the last time. I just want to say a few words. And one of the um, my ears really pricked up. I was like, well, what is he going to say here? And um, and he, he talks about the, the camaraderie on the ship and how friendly it was. But it seemed so genuinely earnest. And often you get a lot of this in naval history saying, oh, they were a particularly good crew. Everyone was particularly got on. I always say, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm mm. not entirely sure I believe that. With subs, it's different because they're so small, the crews. And if someone says something like that, you really need to stop and listen because it's quite unusual. But it's also plausible, which I think is the interesting thing. So it does seem to be in a very happy ship. Mm. That, I mean, that's something that Jeffries conveys a lot, just that that submariner, uh, submariners are, are a bit of a different breed and that, um, you know, he talks about all the different sports teams that were on board, you know, the, the football team. And then, you know, these guys would play something else and cricket and, you know, so forth. And, you know, it just sounds like it sounds like a, you know, a, a floating community that happened to, you know, fire a dummy torpedo every once in a while. Um and and but you know it, it really affected Galp and I spoke to his son at one point and he said my father never talked about it he never said the name Poseidon to me everything I know came from newspaper accounts or my mother um, and you know he he was deeply ashamed that that he lost men that were under yeah. his command um, ultimately he was held responsible I mean he he pled not guilty but you know I think he knew deep down that. You know, ultimately, he was convicted of hazarding his ship, which means he took it out of the harbor. You know, so of course, you know he knew it, and and I think he, it really weighed very heavily on him. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about um, poor old Willis suffering with the bends and and the others, um, but there's this there's no treatment or or caring for people with PTSD at this stage and this is a, a staggeringly traumatic experience i was actually appalled when um you said they made this feature film in the, in 1931 really shortly afterwards and poor old willis has to go onto the set and stand there um with these guys up to their waist in water pretending mm. to go through his uh, the 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 appalling nightmare that he's experienced sure well i think you know in part at the time he was he was held up as a hero so it was i think the people that made the film aside from wanting to make a little bit of money you know they they thought of it as honoring him you know here's here's your story of heroism here's your story of success but you know, really and truly, the, the strange thing is, is that even though Galpin was ultimately culpable for the accident and, and Willis was held up at the hero or as the hero, from the moment of the accident onwards, Willis life, Willis's life goes down and Galpin's goes up. Galpin ultimately gets into aviation and he is employed by Imperial Airways, which, is, you know, later became, you know, British Airways. Um, and he zips around, you know, the Middle East trying to find places to land flying boats. Um, so he goes on to a very successful career in aviation and dies at, I think, 77 or 78. Willis suffers from his injuries and, you know, both mental and physical. Um, and, and he passes away at 56. So, you know, after holding a series of jobs, actually, he ended up uh, for a time working as an electrician at the at the film studio where the film was made. So, I mean, that, that really shows you that, you know, there was, there was no, no particular upside for him for being that hero. Um, and interestingly enough, his gravestone makes no mention of Poseidon, no mention of um, any, any purported heroism. It's, it's just his name. I, I, if I remember correctly, it doesn't even have his rank on it. Um, it's just 
you know, his name and, and, and dates and uh, yeah. quite sad. Well, it's an, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. Why don't you just tell us um, how to find out more about it in the book and the documentary? Sure. So the, uh, the Poseidon Project, which is the documentary, is available. It's video, it's, it's video on demand via Vimeo. So, so I would search for the Poseidon Project in, in quotes um, on Vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O.com. Um, and then uh, Poseidon, which has a very long uh, subtitle, uh, China's Secret Salvage of Britain's Lost Submarine, just to get all the keywords in there, um, <laughs> is available from Amazon, both uh, in Kindle and in, in uh, published format and hopefully some fine bookstores near you. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for sharing the story with us, Stephen. Brilliant stuff. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. Thank you all so much for listening. Here's my usual call to leave us a rating or review wherever you are listening to these podcasts. It's very quick and easy and makes all the difference in our constant quest to educate the world about how important maritime history is, whilst demonstrating how enormously entertaining and fun it is at the same time. And if you leave us a review, I promise I will read it out. Make sure you check out our YouTube channel, which has now had well over a million views. We've just made some very entertaining little videos inspired by the crazy appearance of rock nodules raised from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean by the Challenger expedition in 1876. What a mad sentence that is. But you have to see it to believe it. Under a microscope, rock nodules look like some kind of graphic novel from the 1960s. I think they're brilliant. But that's it for now. More Chinese maritime history coming your way soon with the Maritime Silk Road. Please don't forget that this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. Do everything you can to check out what those fabulous institutions are doing. In particular, please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. That's the Lloyd's Register Foundation's latest project, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. It's absolutely brilliant. Just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And you can find the Society for Nautical Research at S nr.org.uk where you can and you must join up. It's not only a fabulous way to find out all about the maritime past from the very best in the business, but it's a really lovely way of meeting people. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.